You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you conversations with practitioners, authors, and scholars who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please reach out to us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. If you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. Give us like a social picture of these intelligence agencies and some of their leaders and the types of people they recruit and so forth. That's another one that I think requires a lot more research to really nail down, but I can, I can give you the little bit that I think I understand about that. So there have been um, advertisements in, in uh, media and other places, social uh, networks, looking for recruits that go up and then they go down really quickly uh, for, for state security ministry. Um, as far as uh, how the military does it, I have no idea and would like to know more. Um, but the recruiting in colleges uh, seems to be done person to person, as well as through these adverts where you're asked to write to a certain address. And the people that they've been looking for lately are people who have useful target languages including English, Japanese, Korean, Russian, um, but also um, but also Uyghur and Tibetan. So they're always looking for people with these languages. They're always looking for people with uh, technical expertise. Um, they don't always recruit people directly in to be uh, direct hires they often recruit people nowadays who serve as contractors. Indeed, the, um, the two people who were indicted earlier this year, I think it was, working for the Guangdong State Security Bureau, uh, but indicted by the Justice Department, 
who were hackers, they were contractors uh, and probably continue to be contractors to the Guangdong State Security Department. But once people are recruited, uh, the information I've found so far indicates that uh, that it's sort of like being in CIA. You're you're uh, you're asked to not tell everybody where you're going. Uh, maybe you can tell your family, but you don't tell all your classmates. And uh, when you do go off to work for state security, you you pretty much uh, cut your ties, your former um, uh, social ties, because that would be insecure to maintain them and have to answer questions about where you are and what you're doing. I think in the book you mentioned how foreigners, or sorry, it's a quote, um, foreigners in China leave a wake like a ship um, where they can be picked up. G give us a sense of, of the, the differences between a country like China and the United States and the difficulties of running operations there. One of the main differences is that although there is now a historic high tide of foreigners in China, and the last time there was a historic high tide of foreigners in China was just before the uh, Japanese invasion in 1937. So that's, and during that time, China was uh, in terrible shape when it came to dealing with foreign influence. And so that's, that of course is something that's on the minds of, I think, any counterintelligence officer in China. There are all these foreigners here and, and the last time there were, we were in trouble. So obviously this is a big threat. But in spite of that, the percentage of people in China who are foreigners, either visitors or residents, is very low compared to other countries. And that's why a foreigner moving around in China can leave a wake of sorts uh, uh, as they go from place to place, unless you're in a place like uh, Shanghai, Xintiandi area, that sort of thing, where there are foreigners everywhere. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that is what I mentioned before of um, the historic legacy of the century of humiliation, uh, creating um, a sense of hostility and um, and um, paranoia that lies below the surface. It's it's a very interesting environment in this sense because crime is relatively low in Chinese cities. At the same time, if a foreigner does something stupid um, and insults um, uh, commonly known, commonly understood Chinese sensibilities concerning interaction with foreigners, then all hell can break loose. And uh, you'll have a, a whole bunch of people who are very angry and are willing to, uh, to, uh, to be nasty. <laughs> <laughs> to an isolated foreigner or group of foreigners, and this uh, can lead to the police coming around and arresting the foreigners. Uh, so that's another problem. Um, so beyond that, it's always been it's always been um, uh, difficult to operate in China uh, to accomplish any sort of foreign espionage. Uh, it occurs. Uh, and and uh, the um, 
the near paranoia that you see in the Chinese media at times, um, including the, the very amusing cartoonish representation of, of uh, the threat, the, 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 um, the hazards of making a, of a foreign boyfriend um, that was uh, reported by the New York Times a couple of years ago. Um, these things are based on real incidents. Um, of course, there were something around, something like 20 CIA agents, uh, local, local people who were recruited to be CIA agents who were, who were um, found and uh, captured and executed by the Chinese side in uh, the period 2010 to 2012. So that's, that's an obvious um, indication that the foreigners are out to spy on China. Uh, another obvious indication is that, uh, is that they regularly talk about uh, large rings of Taiwan spies and they display people who have been captured. Um, but these are also reflections of something that's universal. And that is in the words of the late James Lilly, everybody spies. Mm -hmm. Um, China is engaged in spying over here and in Britain and in other countries. Um, the British, uh, uh, if, if you're familiar with British culture, you know about Roald Dahl, the, uh, the author who during World War II was uh, uh, a military attache after he was uh, shot down and injured. Uh, he was a military attache, air attache, assistant air attache in Washington. and. Uh, his liaisons with people like Claire Booth Luce are the stuff of legend. Uh, he was an influence agent before the U.S. entered the, uh, the Second World War. So everybody does these things. And I think one of the major problems in U.S.-China relations is that, is that people on both sides uh, really need to sort of get a grip here when it comes to these matters. Um, Spying is part of uh, international relations. It's just part of geopolitics. And it's, uh, it's not a cockroach crawling up your arm. You know, it's, it's not Alfred Hitchcock and the birds. It's, it's just a part of life. And it needs to be dealt with not by doing crazy things like uh, throwing out all Chinese students and, and uh, most of the Chinese uh, 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 journalists and, and uh, for that matter, throwing out a bunch of uh, American journalists in China, uh, it needs to be handled with standard counterintelligence, counterespionage work. Uh, and we all need to stay calm. One thing I remember from the Cold War, I grew up here in the Santa Clara Valley uh, near Moffett Air Base, which is the federal air base nearby. And and these uh, submarine hunters would go out, um, these big airplanes would go out and fly straight over my grade school on their way out to the Pacific to look at the Russian trawlers that were four miles off the coast, gathering signal intelligence and look for Russian submarines. And everybody knew this, including little kids. And we weren't panicked, you know. <laughs> this did not cause us to go looking for Russians to hang by the nearest tree. Uh, and it's important to keep that kind of thing in mind that that you just have to stay calm and use counterespionage to find the uh, the people who are spying and uh, throw out diplomats who engage in in uh, in um, uh, efforts not becoming a diplomat 
and and keep on moving. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the Cold War there. So do countries like the United States uh, face the same problem that they faced with the Soviet Union and that it was, it was very difficult to run U-Mint operations there. So they're forced to fall back on uh, technical collection. Well, this brings us to uh, something I think you wanted to discuss, the dreadnought moment. Exactly, yeah. Okay, so th that's one thing. That was uh, Peter Mattis's idea. And, uh, and uh, as background, of course, anybody can look this up on the web, uh, D-R-E-A-D-N-O-U-G-H-T. Um, <clears throat> the HMS Dreadnought was, uh, was the first of, its, uh, of a class of ships that had really good armor and long-range guns and fast engines. So they could outshoot, outmaneuver. Uh, it's all about fire and maneuver in uh, military history when you get right down to it. And so they, they could outshoot and outmaneuver other ships. And pretty soon all the navies were copying um, these characteristics for their own battleships and cruisers and destroyers. So um, the dreadnought moment for intelligence operations in general was uh, the advent of the use of of um, the internet to burrow into somebody else's target database. Not only the ability to get into it, but the fact that these databases have so much information available uh, to steal. Prior to that time, of course, people would try to steal documents, uh, convince a person working inside a target facility to uh, take some stuff out underneath their shirt, et cetera, et cetera, um, photograph it, and then return it without anybody knowing. And so that was an aspect of classic espionage, but it was, uh, it was like the inchworm going forward at a very slow pace in terms of uh, when compared to today. So today, of course, there's untold amounts of information available to steal um, if you can hack into it. And uh, that's the dreadnought moment where we now have uh, to deal with that threat and uh, that vulnerability, not only us, of course, but everybody else. What role do Chinese intelligence agencies play in maintaining domestic order and security? Mm. They play a major role because partly because of the perception uh, in ideology and indeed in CCP history that there are enemies within everywhere. So that is where this Ministry of State Security and the Ministry of Public Security split the mission in half uh, with state security looking for spies and, uh, and following around foreign diplomats and journalists and so on, not to mention foreign business people. <clears throat> and, um, and the Ministry of Public Security looking for dissidents whom they believe are particularly inclined to assist foreigners in spying against China. Uh, and one of the problems here is that in China, so much is considered secret. Things that would be for official use only here in the United States or even just unclassified economic information uh, are often classified on the Chinese side. 
and can be classified at the drop of a hat. Um, the uh, the geologist named Stern Hu, that's H-U, Stern Hu, who was an Australian citizen, uh, was one of the victims of this when he was uh, when he was trying to get uh, geological information for his uh, uh, natural resources company, his drilling company, I guess it was. And uh, he suddenly found that the information he had acquired, which was unclassified in nature, was uh, classified in retrospect, and he was arrested as a spy. So both of these agencies play a role in um, in trying to protect China from undue foreign influence and and the uh, the reaction of the Chinese state and party to foreign influence has uh, become more and more, um, I hate to keep using the word paranoid, but it's become more and more paranoid over time, um, leading unfortunately to, uh, to people being um, um, focused on in investigations simply for having foreign contacts. We seem to be going back to, toward anyway, back toward that age when when uh, liaison with a foreign power was uh, was a very vague, generally stated charge that could be levied against anybody who just had relatives overseas. I don't think we're there yet, but uh, but it would be uh, unfortunate if we continued to move toward that era. Mm -hmm. So uh, imagine uh, a spy cast listener um, in a post-COVID world. They're on the plane on the way to Beijing. They're listening to SpyCast. Um, they're just about to get out at the. <laughs> they're just about to get out at Beijing Airport. What does a non-Chinese citizen have to worry about when they're there? If if they do, or can you tell our listeners the extent to which they're going to go on the radar of the various and the the intelligence and espionage apparatus? One of the things we tried to do in the book was outline this for people so that they don't go to China with uh, unrealistic fears, but that they do have um, a rational appreciation for the baseline of surveillance and the, uh, the enhanced surveillance that can follow that. I remember when I first arrived as a diplomat in China in 1991, one of the rumors that persisted for years was that the elevator machinery house on the top of each one of the apartment buildings where foreigners were um, housed was a listening post, which was ridiculous because they, they were only big enough to hold elevator machinery, which was pretty bulky back in those days because it was domestically produced. On the other hand, uh, it was true that state security and other agencies had a really good lock on our residences, uh, not only for diplomats, but for journalists and other foreigners um, that they maintained, and I think they still maintain uh, up to the present day. So the baseline of surveillance I referred to includes things like uh, when you check into a hotel, they ask for your passport, they copy it, and they send it to the police. In this country, by contrast, 
they'll take down your name with an ID, but they just keep it. They don't send it to the police because the police couldn't care less unless they're investigating some sort of crime, in which case they'll come down hard on a hotel if they have not been following local law by properly registering guests. So that baseline of surveillance exists partly because of the paranoia I, dis I discussed earlier, partly because local public security bureaus are expected to keep track of foreigners who are within their jurisdiction. And they're expected to be able to immediately respond if a foreigner disappears or commits a crime, et cetera. So, so they are very effective in doing this. Um, and of course, now, nowadays with the increasing use of artificial intelligence combined with, uh, with the proliferation of closed circuit TV surveillance of public spaces, um, the baseline of surveillance is expanding. But just because you're included in that baseline of surveillance doesn't mean that you're actually being watched by a person. Uh, that's their equivalent in some respects of metadata that we've heard about in this society. Now, if someone is suspected of, of um, engaging in illegitimate activity, then that baseline of surveillance turns into enhanced surveillance. And of course, it can include all the elements that SpyCast listeners are used to thinking about of uh, examining telephone records carefully, looking at uh, uh, every single withdrawal you've ever made from an ATM and, uh, and doing surveillance and so on like that. The question that requires more research, um, but there's a good likelihood it's true, is, uh, is whether or not the party committees are being used to give directions to companies in, uh, in uh, pursuing operations that are a benefit to the Chinese state. And indeed, um, I think it's the, the uh, book by Richard McGregor called The Party, which is a really good read. I highly recommend it. Uh, a little bit dated now, but it's still um, really good stuff. Um, he makes clear how the party influences state-owned enterprises and and how uh, uh, indeed the CEOs of state-owned enterprises are often swapped around like chess pieces because their real job is to support the priorities of the party as well as to make the business successful. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Looking at this election or the last election, with your expertise, um, do you get the sense that 
China is trying to put its thumb on the scale to shape the information landscape? I suspect that it's not like it is with the Russians. With the Russians, they have, uh, of course, they're on record as having organized demonstrations so that people can get in fights with each other on the street, uh, with um, trying to, to burrow into local um, Secretary of State websites and databases, uh, presumably with the uh, ultimate goal of changing the vote count, this sort of thing. Um, so they've been, the Russians have been very active in this way, but so far, um, I haven't seen any evidence of a Russia-style manipulation uh, using hacking and doxing techniques. I think that the Chinese side is far more interested in enhancing the traditional mission of influencing and, if possible, controlling the dialogue about China in the service of preserving and improving public perceptions about China so that these in turn will influence policymakers. Um, they're also engaged, of course, in uh, micro operations to do things like uh, oppose a visit by the Dalai Lama to a university campus or something like that, um, which are also aimed at the larger goal of, of um, steering public opinion toward a more positive um, view of China. So I think that's the real goal of online activity um, that, that goes all the way back to, um, to when Zhou Enlai met Kissinger and Nixon and presented a vision of China uh, to the journalists who visited with Nixon during the February 1972 uh, landmark visit of the U.S. president to China, uh, presenting a vision of China that was, uh, was um, consistent with improving China's strategic relationship with the United States and ultimately winning the Cold War against the Soviet Union, because, of course, during that time, China and the Soviet Union were enemies. And that's something we should get into, too. Um, Zhou Enlai, he's a major figure in the early history of Chinese communist intelligence. I find Zhou Enlai such a fascinating figure. Um, could you just draw out um, who he was and why he's of significance for Chinese communist espionage? Well, he's considered to be one of the fathers of, if not the father of, intelligence and security work by the Chinese Communist Party. In 1927, when the communists and the nationalists were engaged in a united front at the direction of Moscow, um, basically to keep the Japanese occupied in China so they wouldn't invade Siberia, the Chinese Communist Party lacked intelligence, and indeed there was an intelligence failure of massive proportions that almost resulted in the extermination of the party when the nationalists um, instituted a coup on April 12, 1927 to 
uh, annihilate as many communists as possible because uh, the nationalists realized that the communists had only joined the nationalist party in order to subvert it and uh, they had their own agenda it was a pro-moscow agenda and so forth they they call that uh, the cleansing of the party and as opposed to what the communists call it which is a uh, coup d'etat so at that time joe and lai was uh, a major party figure and for reasons that I would still like to further define, he was asked by the Central Committee to start up an intelligence organ within the party. And indeed, this intelligence organ, it was only a, a, um, a branch, and so it had a relatively low ranking in the hierarchy, but it reported directly to the Central Committee. And, uh, and so he was responsible for getting it all together, starting with VIP protection and uh, finding um, uh, residences, underground residences for leaders and, uh, and uh, ultimately assassinating enemies uh, and so forth. And indeed, he was involved in a quite brutal set of murders um, immediately thereafter. The family of, uh, of uh, Gu Xunzhang in 1931. Gu Xunzhang was the head of, of the Communist Secret Service of the Tebia uh, Renwuke, or the Teke, the Special Operations Branch. So he was captured in Wuhan and defected to um, the Nationalists, uh, which he considered his best choice as opposed to being tortured to death. Um, dirty revolution, you know, torture on both sides, all this uh, nasty stuff. So, um, so Zhou Enlai um, sent a group of people to Gu Xunzhang's residence in Shanghai, and uh, ultimately they decided to uh, to execute the entire family except for a, an infant, and they buried them underneath the stones of the courtyard. And it was only a couple weeks later, when the stench was uh, too strong to be ignored, that uh, that their graves were discovered. So that was Zhou Enlai. Uh, we think of Zhou Enlai as an urbane diplomat who met with Kissinger and Nixon and, uh, and uh, spoke good English. But all during this time, um, he was, uh, when he wasn't in charge of, of political oversight of CCP intelligence, um, he was sidelined at times by Kang Sheng and Mao Zedong. Kang Sheng, the, uh, the subject of the book Claws of the Dragon, which Ain't bad, it's got its problems, but it ain't bad. Uh, 1992 work by Byron and Pack. Um, so Joe and Lai all this time was, uh, was so involved with and, and, uh, and close to CCP intelligence that uh, even today, the nickname for, uh, in the Lakari novels, it's called the reptile fund, right? The money you give to sources who are who are um, uh, nasty <laughs> reptiles, um, is, it's called the Premier's Fund. The, I think it's, it's only Faye, I might have that wrong. But um, in any case, he was the father of CCP intelligence. He oversaw it until his uh, January 1961 death, excuse me, 1976, January 1976 death. Could you give us a sense to which the various uh, leaders have shaped or not uh, Chinese communist espionage? Are we, are we looking at more continuity or, or 
have any of those premiers really um, changed the landscape? Walk, walk us through that, please. Well, there have been people who have um, who started off with CCP intelligence. One of them, who's profiled in the book, uh, was Nia Rongjun. So Nia Rongjun was uh, a PLA general. He was uh, in charge of um, military um, technological development. But uh, early in his career, in 1930 to 31, he was uh, an operative in the uh, special operations branch, or sometimes it's called the special services branch. That's probably a better uh, term for it, the SSS. And uh, it was only for about a year <clears throat> that he was involved with the SSS. But during that time, he was he posed as Mr. Lee, a journalist, and he engaged in overnight operations to punish and kill uh, opponents of the CCP underground. Um, and this was a difficult time for him and for his wife, um, uh, John Ray Hua, who uh, had to wait every night for him to come back. And she was under instructions by, by Nia Rongjun to abandon their residence if he didn't show up by, by dawn, uh, a uh, situation that caused her a lot of anxiety into old age. Um, there were a number of people who had, uh, who went on to other leadership positions in the Communist Party afterward. Um, they include Li Chang, who I think was uh, Minister of, uh, of uh, Foreign Trade. Uh, Li Chang was, uh, was also involved in the SSS early on, and uh, he was uh, a radio technician who, who um, set up the first uh, wireless networks used by the the Communist Underground and by the Special Services uh, section um, during the early stages of the revolution. Now, beyond them, there was also Chen Gung, who I mentioned earlier, uh, who was uh, a general in the PLA. But uh, his one of his early responsibilities was uh, to be in charge of the uh, intelligence section of the SSS. Um, nowadays, it's more of a of a closed system, people don't punch the intelligence ticket like they did during the revolution. Um, there are some leaders of uh, the modern state security ministry who uh, who are political people who were sent in to control the uh, the ministry. And indeed, this is a uh, a very important part of the nature of. Chinese communist intelligence is that the party controls it. Uh, only one time in its history really has, its, has it been like a KGB under Stalin, and that was during uh, the uh, 1942 to 44 rectification campaign that included the, the crazy 1943 um, salvation campaign in Yan'an when, um, when the uh, Social Affairs Department, then the intelligence arm of the party was turned loose on the party and began to basically devour its young. Um, that all backfired. Uh, Mao was forced to apologize for that. And since then, um, these uh, foreign intelligence elements and indeed the domestic security elements, uh, including in the Ministry of Public Security and the Ministry of State Security have been under very firm party control. 
so they do as they're told. They follow, they follow um, the orders from the party. They are required to uh, do a lot of study to um, stay current on party doctrine. And so they are considered more reliable nowadays, I would say, than in, uh, during the times of the revolution. I mentioned to a friend who's not involved in uh, the intelligence espionage world, I told him about uh, the fact that I was speaking to you today. And I said, what's the one question that you would really like to know that you don't know about Chinese communist espionage? And his response was, are they as crazy about spy fiction and, you know, James Bond, <laughs> Le Carre, <laughs> as mm -hmm. uh, people in the West? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because uh, spy stories from the revolution have a big audience in China, um, both in um, uh, books, nonfiction books that are partly fiction, of course, because they follow the party line, but nonfiction books about things that actually happened during the revolution, about people, uh, heroes of the revolution. Um, so there's not only the uh, earlier examples like the um, the film the woman courier uh new new um that was based on the exploits of this uh, uh nice old lady i interviewed in dalian named wang shirong um but there's also more modern versions now first of all if you were to um, use chinese characters and web search Han Hanyan or Li Kanong, uh, you'd get a plethora of stuff on YouTube, uh, documentaries and some, uh, some uh, television series as well. Um, there's a uh, recent, probably about 10 years old now, um, television series called State Secrets or Guajia Mi Mi, a television series about uh, MSS catching Chinese people who betrayed their country for foreign money. Um, it's not bad, uh, but even better are other things. Um, if there's if there's a James Bond under development in China, I'd say he's uh, ironically a Taiwan actor named Eddie Peng. So Eddie Peng seems to have found a special place in uh, Chinese special operations and espionage films. He was he starred in Operation Mekong or uh, Meigong He Xingdong a 2016 Hong Kong China film directed by Dante Lam uh, that also starred uh, Zhang Hanyu uh, about the massacre of Chinese boat crews in the Golden Triangle region on the Mekong River that led to a, a Ministry of Public Security special operation to catch the killers. Big adventure film, not bad. Um, an even better film also with Eddie Peng uh, is Our Time Will Come. Um, Mingyue Jishiryo, uh, that was set in Japanese-occupied Hong Kong in uh, 1942, uh, directed by An Hui, uh, An Hui, starring uh, Eddie Peng as uh, a heroic James Bond-type character, uh, and uh, the female actor Zhou Xun, who's a big star in China. Um, and Zhou Xun was also in a film called The Message, or Feng Sheng, uh, it was an espionage film set in Japanese-occupied uh, Shanghai, same year, 1942, directed by the famous uh, director uh, Feng Xiaogang, uh, which is about uh, uh, Zhou Xun 
uh, th this is entirely fictional to my to my knowledge. Whereas uh, our time will come was close to actual history, but in that one, she's uh, a secret agent who's infiltrated nationalist intelligence, and that situation was not unheard of. Indeed, it was uh, somewhat common. The, the communists were very good at infiltrating nationalist intelligence during the revolution. So you know, we are recording this podcast to educate the and inform the SpyCast uh, listeners about Chinese communist espionage. Imagine I'm in Luoyang or Dailan or Beijing, and I, I hear, wow, there's this, there's this great book by Peter Mattis and Matthew Brazil. Uh, I really want, I heard there's a podcast on it. I really want to listen to it. How, what, what barriers are they facing to try to get access to that? I mean, is there a way for them to hear this, or is it just something they're never going to get? Sure. Um, that's a really dynamic situation. There are companies out there, and you can web search this and you'll find them without much problem. There are companies out there that offer VPN or virtual private network services where you uh, can use these VPNs in China, you can uh, jump over the Great Firewall, et cetera, et cetera. And their success goes in and out, up and down. Uh, it's, uh, it's like a, a whack-a-mole game um, with the Chinese authorities on one side and the VPN companies on the other. Um, you can find all sorts of uh, of uh, accounts of people being successful and not successful, being getting up, be able to get over the firewall and get anything they want versus, oh, I couldn't get out and see anything at all. Um, it's a dynamic situation. Um, for the most part, to my knowledge, foreigners are not persecuted for attempting to do this, uh, to get past the Great Firewall. Um, Chinese people, on the other hand, um, are more vulnerable. They are sometimes, mo mostly they get away with it, but but sometimes people are fined uh, or they're asked to come down to the police station um, because the, the um, censorship effort in China is both national and local. Um, it is instituted, administered at the um, gateways in places like Shanghai, Tianjin, Beijing, um, but it's also administered at the local level because ultimately the Ministry of Public Security has responsibility for, um, for countering subversion. And subversion is, uh, is considered to be an online thing as much as, uh, as uh, offline. Indeed, um, I remember seeing a, uh, a uh, cartoon online about a grade school or maybe junior high school student who, uh, who when on National Security Day, April 15th every year, same as tax day in America, on National Security Day in his school, he, his class is asked to, uh, to tell about a, a national security problem that they themselves have faced. And so this little boy wearing a red scarf, of course, stands up and uh, tells about how his father was lured to, uh, to find information online about uh, the military and send it to an anonymous foreigner on the internet and how uh, their grandfather saw what his father was doing and, and uh, 
dropped a dime on the guy, turned him in, or actually convinced him to uh, to go confess to the state security, local state security bureau, which was of course uh, uh, very lenient and uh, praise praiseworthy of uh, of uh, the dad. So um, so this is a moving target. Uh, a lot of things in China are a moving target, to quote uh, the late Roderick McFarquhar. Uh, China is a moving target, and this. Uh, and that, just, that doesn't mean you're shooting at it. That means it's hard to nail down uh, at any given time anything that's going to last for very long. Um, things change in China. Thanks so much for helping to helping us get our heads around Chinese communist espionage. Um, it's really been wonderful to speak to you. Hope everyone buys the book. For, the, for those that don't, if there's one morsel that you want them to take away to chew over, what would it be? Sure. Well, first of all, I want to say that um, I am endeavoring to uh, to uh, nail down a publisher for a next book that will be more of a narrative, uh, uh, bit of a narrative history, but also a narrative on on uh, less of a handbook, uh, more of a narrative on this topic. And um, one of the things that uh, that uh, authors are supposed to do when they're trying to get a mainstream publisher is build up an email list. So anybody who is interested in getting on my email list to uh, receive occasional newsletters discussing this topic and the way the, the thing is going um, are invited to send me an email. Uh, I hope my inbox is totally overwhelmed. Uh, Matthew.brazil at gmail.com. That's M-A-T-T-H-E-W dot B-R-A-Z-I-L at gmail.com. Um, no, no virus attachments, please. Uh, so that's the first thing. Um, but secondly, the thing I would leave you with is that um, we in the democracies of the world are not going to successfully stay afloat, resist authoritarianism by becoming more authoritarian ourselves. The United States in particular has been known through, uh, throughout its recent history as being a beacon of democracy, freedom, liberty, um, and opportunity. And we have to get back to basics, in my opinion. Thank you. I thought that getting people, uh, allowing people to reach out to you was a nice touch. I appreciate your time and, and, and you gave such great answers it was interesting it was engaging and it was informative which is everything that i was hoping for the international spy museum is a full 501c3 non-profit if you want to donate to the museum or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum please visit our website spymuseum.org for more information Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to share your feedback now.